gentlemen welcome back to the locked in podcast here on anchor fm we are uploading these things mainly on fridays 10 a.m est now we have a lot to discuss in today's episode five teams to run through who i think have a legitimate shot at winning the title four not so much one that is probably going to run through them anyways with this in mind we're jumping straight into the nba again because as it stands right now the league is still a few days away, but scrimmages are in full effect at this point. And one thing that we need to note straight out of the gate is the Eastern Conference is not weak. It's not weak. And according to a lot of advanced metrics, it never was weak. So we're going to jump right into this. The NBA playoffs are going to take shape and there's a huge Fiesta. There's a huge brawl about to happen for the eighth seed in the Western Conference. I think everybody's grabbing their popcorn and drizzling it in butter. Maybe sticking a straw in there if you're an OG. You funnel that butter, excuse me, straight down into the foundation of your kernels of that of that popcorn. You know what's up. Everybody's gonna be looking at that, going, "All right, who's gonna get the eighth seed? Who's gonna get the eighth seed?" And then. Once the playoffs start, the eighth seed isn't going to matter because the Lakers are going to smash them anyways, provided that the Lakers still hold on to that first spot, which seems like they will. However, with the East, it's a bit different because we're not looking at who's not going to win the eighth seed. It's how the brackets are going to match up. Because depending on how the brackets match up depends on who advances to the Eastern Conference Finals, and that is final. So, we're going to jump right into this. The Milwaukee Bucks are the first team on our list. Straight out of the gate, they're still the team to beat in the league. They carry the best record. They're the only team above 50 wins. And they are leading the charge with arguably the best player in the world at the moment in Giannis Antetokounmpo. I know some people that would try to disagree with that, specifically LeBron and Kawhi Leonard fans. But as it stands right now in terms of regular season, Giannis has been killing it. So we're going to go ahead and just get right into this. We touched last week on MVP. Giannis is leading the charge for his second MVP, and as I highlighted last week again, if you haven't seen the episode, highly recommend you go check it out. Giannis is playing at a championship level on both sides of the floor, and last episode we took a look at why exactly that is and how he's doing it so effectively, even though he's the only legitimate superstar on the Bucks this year, with Middleton being inconsistent. Now, Middleton being inconsistent leads me into point number two I'm going to make about this team, which is Chris Middleton has proven to be a consistent number two behind Giannis for the majority of the season, for the majority of the game. Obviously, in the fourth quarter in crunch time, his numbers get a bit iffy, and I mean a big bit iffy, but overall, he has proven to be a a solid number two if you, if you can't really try to pick, like, oh, I want Jason Tatum as my number two, or I want... Anthony Davis, like, obviously the Bucks can't get 
either of those players, but they do have Chris Middleton, and Middleton has flourished in his role without Giannis on the floor. With this being said, though, you have Giannis, you have Middleton, you've got a whole bunch of other defenders, Wesley Matthews, George Hill, Brooke Lopez, and ultimately you have the, on paper at least, best defense in the league, especially with perimeter defenders like some of the names that I just mentioned. Pat Connaughton as well is thrown into the mix sometimes, so it's not all the starting unit. And even then, Eric Bledsoe is the starting point guard over George Hill in the first place. Uh, some people would say, oh, the Clippers have the better uh, defense. Maybe they have the better individual defenders. If you look at the numbers, if you look at opponents' points per game combined with usage percentage and how many times that they stop ISOs a game and the rim protection, it's the Bucks by a slight margin. However, slight is debatable, but it is still the Bucks. With this being said, the three-point shooting around Giannis arguably got better in terms of overall personnel, but in terms of consistency, definitely declined. Malcolm Brogdon was huge for this Bucks team. But again, they had an overabundance of guards. They made up for it. They signed more paint protectors, just nailed down a solid bench after, after Brogdon bolted to Indiana for the money, and... Milwaukee's done a really good job for themselves. The three-point shooting around Giannis has allowed him to flourish, and I mean absolutely tear defenses up left and right. And the thing that really I want to keep in mind here about the way that Giannis is able to shoot, uh, and mainly his jumper, is he is shooting 30% from three this year. That is up 5% from last year. But his jumper is super, super wonky on the release. And I feel like if he continues to, to start shooting more threes, we may see him become a 32%, 33% three-point shooter like Michael Jordan was late in his career. Maybe he just becomes a, a high-volume shooter and the threes just come in rhythm instead of just jacking them up like Giannis does sometimes with them, which is rare to see. But it's allowed him to flourish, and the shooting around him is more volume-dependent than efficiency-dependent in these games, but it's still working because, again, you're the Milwaukee Bucks. You have Giannis. You tear through defenses, and at any given point, Giannis can get the ball, just get the slightest bit of opening, and just absolutely throw it down. So, the three-point shooting allows him to flourish, yes, and the Bucks have taken a similar approach to the Rockets in terms of their style, which is they love the run-and-gun kind of play style, but the thing that the, that the Bucks need to improve on here is improving their draw or their drawn fouls per game because they're not drawing that many fail they're not drawing that many fouls and hitting free throws in late game situations their free throw percentage dips in the fourth quarter it's crazy again as i said before it can be improved but it's more volume dependent than anything else at this point the fourth quarter free throw percentage dips to slightly above 60% which is pretty much Giannis's free throw percentage anyways. And you really have to kind of question whether you want Giannis on the floor if you're up and you're trying to play the foul game or if you just want Giannis to inbound because you would love for Giannis to get more points, right? Get him going. If you're needing to go to overtime, you can sit there and try to try to get him back into rhythm if his jumper's off or something. But ultimately, you need a more consistent closer who can hit jump shots. As Middleton, like we highlighted last week, has proven to be very shaky in the crunch time, clutch situations. Crutch, clutch, that term that I used before, I'll use it again. Crutch, clutch, 
means you need a play right now. This isn't just a, oh, he bailed us out of a possession. No, as in, we need a bucket this instant. We need something, you, you need a shot you can go to. Or you need a move that you can put on somebody to create space for a jumper or a layup. You need a shot, you need a score on this possession, and there's only a certain amount of seconds left. You're not able to run a play, you are the play. And Middleton has not been that guy from Milwaukee this year. That being said, we tick on down the list here because the Bucks. I feel like I've already been hit enough, but I will preface this again. Main idea, the Bucks need to be more consistent because we've seen their ceiling and we've seen their floor. And believe me, their floor is not pretty. We need their ceiling of three-point shooting to make up for that lack of, of a close game situation because if the Bucks aren't going to blow you out, chances are they're struggling. The second seed, Toronto Raptors are a very unexpected pick here. This team just flat out came out of everyone's rearview mirror shifted into another gear, hit the NOS, and was gone before we even reached turn one. Kyle Lowry is a top five, arguably top three point guard in the league right now. Lowry has been so instrumental for this squad. It has been ridiculous. And I'm going to call a maestro, you know, orchestrating the offense. This Raptors team is, is overachieving like the Celtics did a few years back in the playoffs whenever they were one game away from the finals. Lowry has been a huge catalyst for this, and it starts with Lowry. It has to. Every great team has a great leader, and Lowry being the point guard is so fitting. Leads the league in charges drawn. Him and Montrezl Harrell are tied for that at 30 apiece. And I predict that Lowry is going to have a lot more chances than Montrez whenever these next eight games start up. So it will be Lowry for a second year in a row leading the league in charges drawn. Not only is he a solid on-ball defender, he's able to play passing lanes aggressively, he's smart, he's quick, and even though he's on what some people would call the wrong side of 30, he's still out there balling, giving you 20 and 8 a night whenever you need it. I don't understand why people hate on this guy. The Lowry hate train, I will never be able to jump on. I get the fact that he's struggled in the past. Something mentally clicked with him. Whenever that last loss to the Cavaliers two years ago happened, whenever whenever the buzzer sounded in Game 4 and it was a complete blowout, something clicked in Lowry's head. And Lowry, ever since, said, okay, I don't need to be the one scoring so long as someone else is. All I need to do is just tell my team to generate buckets. Whether that's scoring, passing, rebounding. Lowry is one of the best offensive rebounding guards in the game. And that is not an exaggeration. Whenever you think, oh yeah, there's a whole bunch of size. Game 7 against Philadelphia, for instance, right? Philadelphia's got a whole bunch of size. 15 offensive rebounds for Toronto. Four of them were from Kyle Lowry. Four from the smallest guy on either roster. At 5'11", 6 feet, he was grabbing rebounds that Joel Embiid couldn't get to. That Tobias Harris, that James Ennis couldn't get to. Lowry is a fighter. He's a scrapper. He's smart with the way that he plays the game. And if anything, it is crucial to this Raptors team of how he plays the game. Pascal Siakam is a superstar in the making. He's learning to expand his range of his post moves. And he's even knocked down a spot at three here and there. Siakam has improved thoroughly. And now you have to respect his three-point shot, specifically from the corners. Because he will, he will be in the mid-range area, see the ball coming towards him, step back into a gather, a move that I have rarely seen from anyone 
much less a long, a long, lanky, six foot nine, two hundred and forty, maybe two hundred and fifty pounds of an athlete in Siakam, and it creates space for him just naturally. And I wouldn't be surprised if, besides OG Ananobi, he ends up being the the primary defensive stopper on some of these more paint dwelly kind of power forwards. Guys like Draymond Green, Robert Covington, P.J. Tucker. Siakam is able to switch onto the perimeter and guard guards. That's fantastic. If he can be anything like Robert Covington on defense or Draymond Green, he will be a solid top 10 pick in his prime. Maybe even top five. Who knows? Here's Serge Ibaka. Picked up his rebounding and his shooting and is a true stretch four, stretch five. Ibaka has had a late career revival and it's been spectacular to watch. Two to three years ago, Ibaka was over in Orlando, of all God-forbidden places, playing power forward. Sometimes he would start. Sometimes he would be back up. Sometimes they put him at the four and put Aaron Gordon at the small forward. Ibaka was dead in the water after the Thunder traded him. He had nothing to play for. Then he arrives in Toronto, and after that point, he was loving it. Because even though it took a couple years, once the Raptors made enough moves, they won the championship. Albeit with an asterisk, but they still won it last year. And Serge Ibaka was a huge part of that. Mid-range pick and pops. There were several times in the in the playoffs, even before the finals, where the Raptors were dead in the water and Serge Ibaka would be grabbing rebounds. Mid-range shots. Oh, and by the way, he's a 6'10", 6'11", big man who is shooting 40% from three on a good night. He's not just a role player. He can be a solid fourth option in the starting five. Mark Gasol will also warn a mention for the low post defense that he brings and also the fact that Gasol has been a more consistent starting five because he is the better defensive post player, which you're definitely going to need on the rebounds. Ibaka, I would argue, is a better shooter, but then again, Mark Gasol can get hot at any given point. Really, with Ibaka and Gasol, one struggles, the other one doesn't, and you just find which one has the hot hand going back and forth in a quarter. Next, we're coming up to a favorite of mine. One of my favorite young players in the league, OG Ananobi. One of the best defenders in the league. And he is a candidate for an all-defensive team with the way he has improved on the defensive end. The guy is 6'7", 245. He's like Kawhi Leonard, basically. And he is lock up, lock down, throw away the key at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. You're never going to find the thing again. He's able to guard ones, twos, threes, and fours without a problem in the book. And the fact that OG is then able to turn around and deliver three-point shooting on the other end. That other small forwards like Alfaruk Aminu or even other wing players in general like a two-guard size Evan Turner can't do. OG's a superior shooter. Fred Van Vliet has been a sniper. A solid 18 points, six assists, and three rebounds a game on efficient shooting for the Raptors. How are they doing this, and how are they the second seed in the East? It's simple. They're able to control pace better than a lot of other teams in the league. They control pace well. Whenever Siakam is able to get it going early on, then that's going to cause the defense to have to play up, meaning that Siakam can then use his speed, use his superior size to start causing major problems. The Raptors may not win the East, and I'm not saying that they are. Definitely, don't count them out. They will definitely be on everyone's radar, at least as a dark horse pick, like I said before. The Boston Celtics are up next, and even though they may not have a quote-unquote legitimate top 10 player, that has not stopped them from terrorizing the East with a roster depth that makes them basically the Eastern Conference version of the Spurs from the 2000s. I mean, they are crazy. 
ball movement everywhere. Everyone gets involved. Everyone gets their stats. Everyone gets their touches. It's a team game, and we're going to play it like it. We pay for a whole 15-man roster, and we are going to use a whole 15-man roster. Now, look, Tatum is the clear-cut best player on the team, and it's the score that he needed to be for this team to succeed. And he's been that all year long. But especially whenever he started whenever he got more minutes and they started diverting more towards him, they started playing him better, he has been going on an absolute tear. Kemba Walker has been an infinitely better fit in Boston system than Kyrie ever could be. Whenever we were back on SoundCloud, I made a Celtics episode and I said then Kemba is going to be a better fit than Kyrie was. Kemba is a better teammate. He's a team first guy. He's a pass first guy at times. And he is able to bring out the best in teammates where Kyrie would have simply just scolded. Kemba is a leader, not a boss. There's a difference between being a boss and a leader. A boss is going to tell you what to do and then watch you sit there and do it. A leader is going to tell you what they're going to do, what you're going to do, and then you're all going to pitch in together and it's going to work out. That's what leadership really is. And that's what Kemba Walker is. Kemba has brought out the best in some people, especially Jalen Brown, this next player. I mean, Jalen Brown is an athletic freak. He can finish over anyone or anything at this point, and he's flourishing under Brad Stevens into a great number two option for the Celtics. And I say a number two option because Kemba is looking more to pass and to just be a presence in the locker room than he is to sit there and drop 28, 25 points a game. Jalen Brown is a superior defender to the vast majority of the NBA. I mean, you can go ahead and look at like the, the Houston Celtics games. Jalen Brown drew the defensive assignment for James Harden whenever Marcus Smart wasn't in the game. And there's a reason for that. But then again, he's able to dish it out on the defensive end too. He plays physical. He plays hands-on. He doesn't care if he gets a couple fouls called on him because you know what? What's a couple non-free throw fouls? What's a couple personal reach-in fouls if that means that I prevent points from getting on the board? He's able to shot block from the weak side, like much like we saw Jordan do throughout his entire career. He's from one end of the court and the other in three or four dribbles. It's madness. And ultimately, I'd say that Jalen has been a great option for them. Marcus Smart remains the defensive stopper on guard assignments. He's remained the defensive stopper on wing assignments. He's the heart and soul of the team, basically what Ben Wallace was for the Detroit Pistons in the early 2000s. And he's a great glue guy to have. Every championship team, every contender needs one. And Marcus Smart is the glue guy for this team. He's also got a great sense of humor. Go check his prank out on Romeo Langford. Now, this team still needs an objectively best big man for the squad because Cancer and Tice cover completely different play styles from each other, and they're opposite. Cantor's a low post threat. Tice is a utility player and a shooter, but they're both okay defense. Cantor is not really the greatest, but Tice is okay. They have a lot of versatility, and making it stops against virtually any plausible lineup that you can try to think of a, of any team. They need to work on consistency, and they need to stop settling for jump shots, especially long threes. Now, we're getting into my personal pick for the Eastern Conference Finals opponent against Milwaukee, the Miami Heat. Miami, probably the best matchup against Milwaukee defensively in the entire conference and probably the entire league besides the Lakers and Clippers because Giannis loves to bully in the paint. And last time I checked, Andre Godala, Jay Crowder, Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, the Heat have people who are strong and adequate defenders who can stop that locomotive freight train that is Giannis Antetokounmpo. And if you have Giannis setting picks, well, guess what? Bam can drop back and try to get there on the lob. That's just how it is. Jimmy Butler has struggled shooting the ball this year. He's definitely struggled this year in, in general in terms of his shot selection, etc. Last year in Philadelphia, he was great in the clutch. This year, statistically, he's bad in the fourth quarters. But make no mistake, Jimmy Butler's still Jimmy Butler. 
He's a great player, and great players are always going to find a way. So what has Jimmy done? All right, I'm not able to shoot the ball that well anymore. Let me give it to some people who are. The shooting for the Heat is second to none this year because the Warriors have been struggling all year, so you can't bring them up. The shooting for the Heat have been second to none. They've got arguably the best catch-and-shoot shooters in the game right now with Tyler Harrow and Duncan Robinson. And the fact of the matter is, they haven't even reached their peak form yet. Look, Jimmy's been distributing and mentoring more than he's ever done. He has pointed to Bam being the best player on the team instead of him. That is selflessness. That is something that we had heard that Jimmy Butler didn't have while he was in Minnesota, that he didn't have while he was in Chicago, that he didn't have supposedly when he was in Philadelphia. He's in a place now where his true figure can and will be ultimately known. Here's some facts for you. Nunn and Harrow, Kendrick Nunn and Tyler Harrow, have both been valuable rookies for the squad. Nunn was looking like a Rookie of the Year candidate before John Morant basically took it over and took it away unanimously. Making the right plays, allowing them to operate in isolations. Jimmy Butler's still somewhat efficient on ISO long twos. Bam is still as skilled as ever. He is still Jokic-like with the, with the passes. Bam is just an all-around great utility player, great guy. It's a two-man game of a pick and roll with Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, and sometimes it's Jimmy Butler holding it. Sometimes it's Bam holding the ball and being able to handle it and cross over. He's being properly utilized by Eric Spolstra, first off. And it's an intriguing mismatch whenever he's running the break or he's handling the ball up top into the free throw line where they like to get it to him. He's not the greatest three-point shooter. He's not the he's not a good jump shooter at all, actually. Bam's post play is great. He's got a bit of a, a bit of a baby hook shot to him that's Kevin Love-like. Andre Iguodala and Jay Crowder, like I said before, they bring much-needed wing defense and switchability to this team because this team did not have a dedicated power forward before Andre Iguodala and Jay Crowder got here. And, and the offensive capability as well has also been highlighted. Jay Crowder is a spot-up threat from deep, and Iguodala is a decent scorer still, decent ball handler. He's a good rebounder, and he's just a good passer to kind of take the ball handling responsibilities off of Jimmy at times. Andre is on his last legs, and this could potentially be his second or third to last season in the NBA as we know it. But Andre's still killing it on the defensive end, and even though the numbers may look and go, oh, Andre's not that good of a defender anymore, just like every Bradley was. No. Andre is still a solid defender. You just got to watch the games. The guard defense may still be a problem for Miami in the playoffs, specifically against teams like Philadelphia with Ben Simmons and Josh Richardson. Boston with Kemba Walker and Jalen Brown. And even if they reach the finals, you're going to play a team with elite guards unless it's the freaking Lakers. But then again, LeBron might play point guard anyways. So there is that problem. It's going to be a problem, but it's only a minor problem because Jimmy Butler can always go back to playing his natural position of shooting guard versus small forward. That being said, our last team today to look at and talk about, the Philadelphia 76ers. They've been a huge disappointment all year, and it starts with their choices in players, their star players there and their choices, etc. Ben Simmons needs more shooting around him, not another big man clogging up the paint. I have no idea why in the world Philadelphia signed Al Horford to a near max contract. No idea. This made no sense. You were better off letting Mike Scott start at the four and signing a better bench than you were to sign Al Horford, who's just eh, at this point in his career. Great utility player. And it's probably better suited to play alongside Ben Simmons. In fact, Simmons has posted better numbers with Al Horford playing the five and Embiid on the bench than Embiid playing the five and Horford on the bench this year. So that just lets you know that Horford's 
better shooting, better awareness. Like the intangibles that Horford is excelling at right now, and the re- and that's the part of the reason why he got paid in the first place, are the things that Embiid is still working on learning. And that's killing Ben. It's killing Ben's game. Ben Simmons loves to run fast, get out in transition, play great defense. Ben Simmons should be playing more of a small forward role than he is a point guard role at this point. The Philadelphia 76ers want to sit there and offer Tobias Harris a max contract. That makes absolutely no sense. Uh, you shouldn't have paid him a max, but you did anyways. Point being, Ben and Joel still do not mesh. The Sixers' p- spacing and pacing problems are only multiplied, magnified, and crunch time whenever the game slows down, specifically in the playoffs. Tobias Harris, Josh Richardson, and Mike Scott on the floor are great, but they have to be on the floor to complement the Sixers' unproven, and I'm going to say it, they're unproven, dynamic duo, which doesn't allow a spot for Horford, who is making bank right now on a bad contract. Philadelphia, they're they're turning out the wallets. It's like Mr. Krabs putting money in a copy machine and trying to send that through a counterfeit cash product in order to try to get more money. Like... This is how bad it is for Philadelphia. They got no cap. They got no room. They can't breathe. Because eventually, Ben's going to need more than what he's getting paid now, which is still a big amount. And B's getting paid an astronomical amount, and he's going to need to get paid more anyways. Somewhere along the line, you're going to have to cut players. And it's th- and then it's just going to be Ben, Joel, and a horrible bench. And you're still going to be saying, trust the process with a 28, 29-year-old core. I mean, this is nonsense. This is, this is Philadelphia ramming their head into a brick wall over and over again. It's not going to work. You should have fired Brett Brown two years ago. I don't know why they didn't fire him after last year's collapse. And B needs post-ups. Ben Simmons needs to be playing on the wing instead of playing the guard position. But nobody's going to do that while Brett Brown is still the head coach. While Philadelphia still has their heads in the sand. Harris J. Rich... And Mike Scott are all great, but they have to be on the floor. The Sixers need to gain depth instead of just putting all their best players on the front. They need to get guys like James Ennis back. They need to get players who are able to create. Signing Darren Collison would have gone a long way. Signing Dion Waiters could have gone a long way. Jamal Crawford and Joe Johnson would be solid additions to this Sixers lineup. I get that Jamal is on his last legs, but he wants to come back. He wants to finish. And Joe Johnson, he's still a bucket. If you can get a couple guys, a couple signings during the offseason, because the offseason will come eventually, you can make a run for the championship. You have the personnel, but you need better coaching. You need a better system. You need a better attitude than, it's all right, guys, let's try it next game. Let's try it next play. No, you can't procrastinate anymore. You can't. You got to start playing faster. You got to start playing better. And you, most importantly, in order to play better, you got to play smarter. And that's what Embiid's got to work on. Hopefully, Horford can teach Embiid a few things before Horford is inevitably traded or cut. Maybe Kevin Love would be a good idea. Kevin Love could be a good a good fit alongside Ben Simmons, alongside Joel Embiid. Ben is a good defender. Joel's a great defender. You have Tobias Harris, who's a solid defender. Josh Richardson is a heck of a defender. Mike Scott's a decent defender. Put Kevin Love in that lineup. I think the Eastern Conference Finals is going to be Bucks, Heat. The Heat will have beaten the Celtics in, say, six or seven games. Boston may end up winning. You never know. But I think the Heat are just the better team, especially two-way. There's a significant difference in big men as well. The Heat have the personnel to keep up with the Celtic superstars, but the Celtics do not have the personnel to keep up with Bam Adebayo. You can try to double him, but I think Bam is just going to have too big an impact in that series for me not to give it to the Heat. So I'm going to just say it's a close-fought seven-game series. The Heat wind up winning in, like, overtime of Game 6 or, or overtime of Game 7. 
and that's that. They go on to face Milwaukee. Milwaukee will have blown the doors off of Philadelphia in like five games. If it does go to six games, it's because the Bucks were cold for one more game than they should have been. I'm excited. Let me know if you're excited back for NBA basketball. Make sure to tune in next time. We're going to discuss the James Harden problem. That episode will be coming up this week as well. Until NBA is over and the football season starts back up, NFL, college, we're going to be covering it all right here. Month of August, two episodes a week on the Locked In Podcast. Hey there, you've made it to the end of this episode. If you want to see more, make sure to click on our profile so that way you can catch up on all the latest sports news and updates and analysis. Any sports you want to talk about, we've got it here for you. Also, make sure to leave a positive rating. Thanks, and we'll see you later.